Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Baldhead Bible Podcast, making the Bible come to life, featuring the exposit story preaching of Dr. John Katzian. Baldhead Bible Podcast is committed to keeping our show free to the public. However, as with everything, there are expenses involved, so if you would like to contribute, head on over to patreon.com, that's patreon.com forward slash baldhead bible, and there you can become a supporting member for as low as $1 a month. While there, please check out some of the bonus material available only to our BHBP supporters. And some of that material includes Bible study guides to help you use the podcast to minister to your children, to minister in a Sunday school class, and to have some quality family devotions. It was quite a sight to see thousands of men sitting in the pouring rain, thousands of men shivering in the wet, damp cold. They were shivering because of the cold, but they were also shivering out of sadness over what they as a nation had done. They were also shivering out of fear of the possible coming judgment of Yahweh for their terrible national sin. The pouring rain, the dark clouds, the men shivering in the cold, it was all a visual symbol of the terrible fate that awaited the newly returned exiles to the promised land unless something was done to fix the terrible thing they had done. But what could they do? And by the way, what had happened in the first place? Well, one thing that did happen was this. Ezra had arrived. Now, the book of Ezra is named after the priest and scribe Ezra, right? It was said of Ezra that he had, it says in Ezra 7.10, that Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, obey it, and teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. That was his whole goal in life. Study God's word, obey God's word, and then teach it to others. Not a bad life goal. Ezra was steeped in the tradition of studying God's word. He could trace his family line all the way back to Aaron, the first high priest of Israel. So in many ways, you could say Ezra came from Jewish royalty. He was expected from birth to be part of the great line of priests and scribes that stretched all the way back to Moses' brother Aaron. I wonder if he felt that weight. Or responsibility. 
Either way, we do know he decided to live that responsibility out to grasp it with both hands. It seems as though Ezra thought, if I'm going to be a high priest someday, then I'm going to devote myself to those three things. Studying his word, obeying his word, and teaching the very words of God. Ezra wanted to be the best high priest and scribe that he could be. Well, he was. He was a great priest and a great scribe. He was born outside of Israel in Babylon. And some sources that I've read say he was born around 480 BC. Now, if that is true, that means much of the story I'm about to tell you occurred when Ezra was in his early 20s, as young as 23. Now, think about that. To be so young and so well-known as a man devoted to studying the Torah, to living it out and teaching it to others, that is amazing to me and should be an encouragement to any young person listening to this that being young does not mean you can't be used by God. The religious reforms Ezra is about to enact, possibly being somewhere in his 20s while doing it, the deep study of God's word at such a young age, man, it, it just goes to show that your young age should not stop you from devoting yourself, if you wish, to studying and living out the words of God. And why would you not want to do that? Now, he may have been older, and we are not certain he was born in 480 BC, but if it is true that Ezra was that young, Man, it's a great example of what we can do with our lives if, like Ezra, we devote our hearts at a young age to studying, living, and teaching the Word of God. Well, no matter how old Ezra was, we do know something else about Ezra. Ezra was smart and talented. He was smart in that he studied, right? I mean, if you study, you're going to be smart. Well, it all depends what you study. Well, but if you study the Word of God, trust me, you're going to be smart. He read the Torah and the other great books of the law and the prophets, like the book of Jeremiah. And then he probably studied other great books of Babylonian literature and science. He was also not only smart, he was talented. He knew how to read and write. That's a talent. And he's described as a scribe, which means he could write well and in ways that would have propelled him quickly up the ladder of social influence and prestige in Persian society. You know, at the time of the book of Ezra, he was probably very comfortable. And many people believe Ezra had achieved some rank of being an official in the Persian government possibly given the official head of Jewish affairs in the Persian government, which means Ezra, at this time in his life, at this young an age, was living a great life. He had a position of influence, was comfortable financially, and his future was set. And yet, here, at the beginning of Ezra chapter 7, Ezra is about to take an arduous journey back to the promised land. Here he is about to leave his comfortable life behind to go live in an area of danger and uncertainty. Why? You know, what would drive him to do such a thing? Well, remember, Ezra loved the word of God. And his life goal, right, was to study it, live it, and teach it. 
Well, I think Ezra's love for God and his word is what's driving Ezra to return. Now remember, it's been 57 years since the temple was rebuilt and the events we're about to hear about starting here in chapter 7 of Ezra. 57 years, that's a lifetime. You know, the people who had returned under Zerubbabel and Joshua were now old. They had finished the temple. But the life of the Jewish people who had returned was starting to fade spiritually. It seems that reports had gotten back that the exiles who had returned were starting to lose ground in terms of establishing a Jewish community in Jerusalem. One author put it this way, religious laxity was prevalent, the law was widely disregarded, and the public and private morality was at an all-time low. I think Ezra heard about this and was concerned about all of this. And he also knew from studying books like the book of Jeremiah that there was an expectation for Jewish exiles to return to the promised land. And if you had an opportunity to return to the promised land, you should take it. And so Ezra took it. It seems that his boss, Artaxerxes I, wanted Ezra to go check out the situation in Jerusalem. He wanted Ezra, as the head of Jewish affairs, to go back and then report back to him on how the rebuilding of the temple was going and how the Jewish community in general was doing. You know, Artaxerxes, he didn't really care about the Jewish people. He just wanted to make sure there was not another revolt brewing in the region and that politically things were stable. And he also knew that if he did this, He'd probably please this God named Yahweh, and based on his dad's history with Yahweh and his understanding of Yahweh, he wanted to keep this mighty God happy. And so Ezra was sent to return. And Ezra went back. He took that opportunity. But he didn't go back alone. He brought with him 1,772 men. And so... If you count in women and children, it may have been as many as four to 5,000 people who returned to Jerusalem in the second wave of returning exiles. Now, if they did a straight shot across the Arabian Desert, it would have been about a 500-mile journey, but nobody did that as you'd die from lack of water. Instead, the journey was 900 miles and took about four months. It followed the route of an area called the Fertile Crescent, And Ezra's group would have followed the Euphrates River north, then journeyed west across the plains to Damascus, and finally south through Samaria to Jerusalem. And along that route, there would have been many robbers and bandits looking to rob the people. It was known to be a dangerous territory. Why not leap out and rob from this band of people who have no help and support apart from the people around them? They're very vulnerable to begin with. And it's a long journey, and it's also a dangerous journey, but it's doubly, triply dangerous for Ezra because he is bringing with him what we would look at today as millions of dollars worth of goods. See, Ezra has taken with him gold, silver, jewelry, again, worth millions of dollars in today's money. 
See, Artaxerxes provided him with a lot of wealth and goods to help restart the building of Jerusalem. And then Jewish wealthy people themselves came and gave of their own to help their brothers and sisters in need. So get this, on this trip, Ezra is carrying 25 tons of silver. Think about that, 25 tons of silver. And then he's carrying three and three-quarter tons worth of other silver articles, three and three-quarter tons worth of gold, 20 bowls of gold, 20, repeat that, 20 bowls of gold that weighed about 19 pounds, and then two expensive bronze objects, and that's on top of all the stuff everybody else had. And again, that would have been worth millions of dollars today. And so Ezra, guess what? He's nervous about being robbed on the way. But what's interesting is he didn't ask mighty King Artaxerxes for military protection. He said nothing. Why? Well, I think it's because throughout chapters 7 and 8 of Ezra, it is said of Ezra that the hand of the Lord was upon him. God was blessing him over and over again, and Ezra saw that, and Ezra knew that. And I think Artaxerxes saw that as well, and I think that's another reason why he trusted Ezra to accomplish his task and to help restart the work in Jerusalem. And he was impressed with this God named Yahweh who was blessing this man named Ezra. And I also think that's why Ezra didn't feel like he had to ask for military protection. He wanted all of the glory to go to God. He wanted it to be known that it was Yahweh who helped them to arrive safely. It was Yahweh who was behind this whole mission and who was sovereignly control of everything. Not some King Artaxerxes. No, he wanted all the glory to go to him. And so Ezra sets out. Him and his merry band of travelers left around the month of March or April and finally arrive in Jerusalem around the beginning of August. And guess what? They made it, safe and sound. They had returned with all of their goods intact. They had brought a new wave of settlers, of Jewish exiles, excited about helping to rebuild. They had also brought Levites and teachers of the law to help bolster the temple worship there and the teaching of the word of God and to renew the temple worship and to once again make the temple the center of Jewish life. He brought all these people and all these teachers and all these priests. And then three days after they arrived, the newly arrived people offered sacrifice to God, 12 bulls for all of Israel, 96 rams and 77 lambs, along with 12 male goats as a sin offering, according to Ezra 8.35. And so Ezra arrives, and with it, a devotion to the study and accurate teaching and living out of the law of God. Well, when you have good Bible teachers, when the word of God is taught accurately and effectively and people are taught the implications of living that word of God out, well, guess what? Amazing things can happen. And one of them is that people's hearts begin to be convicted of sin and error in their own lives. And that is exactly what happened here. After only five months or so of Ezra's teaching, a group of men came to Ezra with a big problem. 
so big a problem that it led to all the men of the nation of Israel sitting in the cold and the rain, shivering under the fear of divine judgment and wrath. See, the problem was this. The exiles, the people who had been there for the past 57 years, had broken the covenant set out by God with the people of Israel as found in the book of Deuteronomy. In that covenant, God had forbidden the people of Israel to marry the, the, the people from the tribes around them. Specifically, God said that the land you're about to enter has people from the tribes of the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And you're not allowed to intermarry with them. You can't make them your wives and your husbands. Well, that was centuries ago, right? Well, this returning band of exiles 57 years ago or earlier had done just that. They had begun to marry people from the tribes specifically of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites. And then they started marrying people from the tribes of the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Egyptians. They were breaking the covenant as set out by Moses. And this covenant was made between the nation of Israel and Yahweh, and they were breaking it by intermarrying with these other tribes and these other people who did not know Yahweh, because this was not a racial thing. It wasn't as if the Jewish people didn't like these other tribes because they were of a different race. No, that wasn't it. They weren't being snobby or bigots in the sense that they thought these tribes were less than them. No, this was a spiritual thing. God knew the strong pull of wanting to fit in, to go along with the crowd, to fit in with the people around you. And God knew that the pull of these other tribes and the pull of their gods would be a snare to his people. They would eventually abandon Yahweh and end up worshiping other gods. This exact thing happens in the life of one of their very own mighty kings, King Solomon. He intermarried with women from other tribes and countries, and by the end of his life, Solomon had abandoned the worship of the one true God, Yahweh, and had given himself wholly to worshiping other gods. And guess what? These groups of people who had returned had started to go in that same direction. Many of the exiles had married men and women from outside of the Jewish community, and it seems that many of them were now worshiping other gods. This was bad. This could eventually lead to the Jewish people being absorbed into the other cultures around them and ceasing to exist as a distinct people. This was so bad, Ezra had to do something about it. He first went out and sat in a public place so all could see him. When he got the news what happened, how they're breaking the covenant, he goes outside and he sits down so everybody can see him around the temple about three in the afternoon. And then he tore his clothes and he plucked hair out of his head and beard and ouch, you know, can you imagine big clumps of hair you pull out of your beard? That must have hurt bad. But he wanted the people to see how upset he was and to come and ask, hey, what's wrong? What's wrong? Why is Ezra our head priest? What? What? And when they did that, he would tell them of the terrible tragedy befalling the people, of the terrible sin the nation had committed. Ezra, then sitting there, 
stopped weeping and wailing and tearing his clothes and beard and began to confess the sin of the people. He cried out to God and asked God to forgive them. He began by confessing the sins they had committed and then begging for God's mercy. He said, my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face towards you, my God, because our iniquities are higher than our heads and our guilt is as high as the heavens. Our guilt has been terrible from the days of our ancestors until the present. Because of our iniquities, we have been handed over along with our kings and priests to the surrounding kings and to the sword, captivity, plundering, and open shame as it is today. And then he begins to thank God for his mercy. He says, but now for a brief moment, grace has come from the Lord our God to preserve a remnant for us and to give us a stake in his holy place. And he talks about how God used other kings to help the people return back to the land. And then he begins to confess again and to repent of the national sin. He says, now our God, what can we say in light of this? For we have abandoned the commands you gave through your servant, the prophets. And he's talking about Moses. And he's saying the commands you gave to not intermarry with the surrounding people. We've broken that command. And he says, after all that has happened to us because of our evil deed and our terrible guilt, should we break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit these detestable practices? Wouldn't you become so angry with us that you would destroy us, leaving neither remnant nor survivor? He's saying, we've broken this command to not intermarry with other people, to not worship their gods. We've broken this command, and won't you become angry with us? We deserve your judgment. And then he goes, Lord, God of Israel, you are righteous. For we survive as a remnant today. Here we are before you with our guilt, though no one can stand in your presence because of this. Ezra 9, 6-15 Ezra cries out in confession. He spoke of the nation's guilt, but you know, it's interesting. He included himself in the guilt and shame. Ezra hadn't done any of these wrongs. He had not intermarried with foreign women. In fact, it was because of his teaching, probably, that the people were made aware of their sin. But Ezra knew that this sin was a national wrong, and as such, he was at blame as much as anyone else because he was part of the chosen people of God. Well, as Ezra wept, and as Ezra cried, and tore his beard, and tore his clothes, the Bible says, slowly, a large group of people began to gather around him. First one person, then another began to listen to him, and, and then they heard him cry, and then they begin to cry as they begin to realize their guilt, and soon this large group of people are wailing and crying along with Ezra. Man, that must have been a frightening sight, you know? Hundreds of people, whoa, wailing and crying, but they're confessing their sin, and they're crying out to Yahweh for forgiveness. I don't know how long this goes on for, maybe hours? I don't know. But finally, one of the men, his name is Shechaniah, steps forward. And he steps forward with a plan. And he steps forward with hope. He tells everybody, you know what? Hey, I've sinned too. 
And we as a nation have sinned. And then he says, you know what? Here's something that might work. He says, we need to make those who have married foreign wives to give them up. To essentially divorce them and and to send them away. To send them and their children away. There was probably a pause as the people thought and thought about this action. And then Shechaniah asks Ezra to get up, to stop wailing and crying, and to take action. And Ezra took action. He made everyone there swear by an oath. Now, an oath made between them and God, that's pretty binding. In fact, it's quite the commitment because that meant when you made an oath like that, that you're saying before God that you're going to follow through with this plan. And if you don't complete it, you will be punished. I mean, that is quite an oath. But they all gave it. That's how determined they were to follow through and to make this right. So then Ezra sends a proclamation throughout all of the land calling all men, all Jewish males, to show up to the temple to confess their sins and to repent. And to give an incentive for every man to show up, Ezra added that if they did not show up, then they would forfeit their possession in the land. In other words, if they didn't show up, they would lose their land and be shunned by the whole Jewish community. Well, you don't want to do that, right? Well, guess what? Everyone showed up on the appointed day. And they sat in the temple square. And then it began to rain. And it didn't just rain. It poured. It dumped rain all over everybody and everything. It was pouring rain. The men were soaked. But they still listened to Ezra as he began to speak. Ezra stood before him and Ezra says, you have been unfaithful by marrying foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Therefore, make a confession to the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the surrounding peoples and your foreign wives. Ezra 10, 10 through 11. And when Ezra said that, all the men shouted back, Yes, we will do as you say. And so, a plan was set out. Everyone would go back to their towns, and the local judges there would investigate the matter. They would have all the men who had married foreign wives come forward. Then they would find out if the wife had converted to following Yahweh. Now, if they had, then no harm, no foul. She was now a Jew and everything was good. But if they found that their wife was worshiping another deity and maybe leading their family in the worship of these other gods or maybe pulling the dad into worshiping these other gods, then they would have to be removed from the house along with any children. And the man would have to divorce the woman. Now, when divorce happened in the ancient Near East, children always went with the woman. So if you're married to a foreign wife and she's not converted to being a Jew, guess what? You're going to have to divorce her and maybe say goodbye to a woman you genuinely loved and say goodbye to children you love. So the interviews and the repentance began 11 days after the proclamation. And it took them three months to go through all of the Jewish families. Involved in this sin were 17 priests, 
including ten Levites, a singer, and three gatekeepers, and also 84 others from around the various parts of the Jewish nation. In all, when you count them all up there in the book of Ezra, 113 Jewish men had married foreign, non-converting wives. And that's the end of the story. That's how the story ends. And we have no clue what happened to these women. They probably returned to their father's house and then either remarried or remained a widow the rest of their days. The children were also removed and lived without their dad. And the men were now separated from women and children that maybe some of them probably loved. It was a tragic end. And that is the way sin works, isn't it? It starts out all fun and games, all wonderful and great, but in the end, by not obeying God and his word, sin destroys and breaks families and relationships apart. And this sin was grievous. Many of the ways these women would have worshipped their deity would have involved terrible sin on its own. And these wives could have converted, right? They could have started following Yahweh, but they chose to remain with their God. They maybe would have actively pulled their husband's heart and the hearts of their children away from God, away from Yahweh. So ultimately, these women chose evil over good, right? Ultimately, these women chose to pursue another God rather than the one true God. This was truly a great sin that these women were involved in, and they chose to follow that sin. The divorces were complete. The proper sacrifices were made. The sins of the people had been atoned, but what a terrible price to be paid. I really encourage you, whoever's listening to this, young, old, older, (laughs) youngest, whatever stage of life you're in, I just would encourage you to live out that simple truth Ezra lived out. Study God's word, obey it or live it, and then teach it to others. Because man, if you do that, you're going to be happier for it. No matter what your mind or your body tells you, ignore it. Obey God's word. Obey God first. Which means you have to study the Bible to know what it says. Hey, and a great way to study the Bible is by listening to this podcast every week. But I encourage you, let's be Ezra's. Study the word of God. Live it out. And then teach it. But notice it says, he determined in his heart. That's where it starts. In your heart and your mind. Let's determine to be men like Ezra. Who study the word of God. Live it out. Obey it. And then do our best to teach it to others. Thank you for listening to Bald Head Bible Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can comment on our Facebook page or email us at baldheadbible at gmail.com. If you would like to support this podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com baldheadbible.
Baldhead Bible Podcast, making the Bible come to life. New episodes added every week. Thank you.